This is Designing the Revolution. You're listening to chapter 25, um, Going into Battle, the Liberal Class. Okay, so we've done, I think, three episodes on building the coalition, constructing or emerging the people. How are you going to bring all these people together? And I was going to continue with the same emergence of the people theme. But I've decided, I'm trying to make this up a bit as I go along. <laughs> I've decided, no, we're going on to a different phase here. We've constructed the people, we've created the emergence of the people, and now we're going into battle. Right, so we're not. This isn't the full battle. It's not the main show, but it's the going into battle. Um, and obviously, I mean a non-violent battle. But I'm using this sort of military sort of analogy. And there's two groups I'm going to talk about. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the liberal class, and in the next episode, I'm going to talk about um, the security forces. All right. So you might be thinking, okay, these episodes, these two episodes are going into battle and then the next episodes we're going to do the battle. But as I keep sort of reminding you, this is not that linear. It's not like this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. It's going to be more like this looping back. So for instance, like after I've done these two episodes, I'm going to go into democratic theory. I'm going to be looking at what actually we're trying to achieve through a revolutionary episode in the 2020s. And then I'm going to come back to the battle bit again. Okay, so I reckon, you you know, <laughs> no pressure or anything, but it's best to listen to the next 10 episodes as one single unit of argument, as you might say. Because it's all, unless you've listened to them all, you can't see how it's all going to fit together. Um, okay, so let's see how we can get on. So one of the things I've been saying, you know, I've been saying this on lots of episodes, right? This, this, um, this podcast is called Designing the Revolution. It's about design. Design is about sophistication. It's about looking in detail at the subject matter that you're looking at the empirical situation, what's actually happening, what are the moving parts. It's not looking at abstract nouns and just playing around with them. Abstract nouns, you know, like trade unions, for instance. What does trade unions actually mean? We want to look in a sophisticated way. So then we delineate that there's trade unionists, there's the branches, there's the people who are on the ground, the grassroots, and then there's the gatekeepers. And our sophisticated analysis, as we discussed in previous the previous episodes, is, is that these two groups have quite different interests. They have different culture, they have a different power relationship to the state and all the rest of it. So as we move on to talking about the liberal class, again, we need a, a sophisticated approach, which is to delineate the revolutionary logic, the revolutionary period, uh, and a reformist logic, and a reformist period. And we can't just go, oh, you know, in an ahistorical sense, oh, the reformism works, or oh, the revolution works. We need to be more sophisticated than that.
So the key proposition here, and this harks back to the sort of initial episodes that I did, the key proposition here is in a revolutionary period, in a revolutionary period which is objectively revolutionary, which we'll talk about a bit more about in a minute, <clears throat> the central strategy, the central revolutionary strategy is to destroy the credibility and the power of the liberal class. That's what I'm going to talk about, that's what I'm going to argue. So one of the first things to say about this is that we're not talking about individuals here. We're not talking about destroying individuals. We're not talking about moralizing with particular individuals. For instance, many um, members of the liberal class historically have become revolutionaries. So an example is in the French Revolution, I think these numbers are broadly right, in one of the initial conventions, national conventions of the people as it were, something like 20% of the people, the representatives in this assembly were aristocrats who were the group that the whole revolution was opposed to. But a small percentage of the aristocrats came over to the revolution because they could see that ethically, politically, philosophically, strategically, whatever, the revolution was where it was at. But of course, we mustn't forget that that's probably only one in a thousand of the aristocrats, right? But it's important to understand that people will come over from the liberal class. And that's an important element because they bring power and credibility and resources and, and what have you. So as we look during the 19th century, the liberal class often was revolutionary in the sense that they uh, adopted revolutionary demands and um, the emergent liberal class was opposed to the aristocracy and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so just in case you think this is all a bit historical and, you know, abstract, I got a letter last week from, you know, a key member of the British liberal class. He's the director of a major uh, climate um, media organisation. And he wrote this letter and he said, well, Roger, you know, I'm leaving my job because there's not a chance in hell that the carbon regime, as I would put it, is going to bring about the changes we need in time. And this happens, you know, on a regular basis now. And as things get even worse, of course, maybe not exactly the floodgates will open, but there'll be many people who will be jumping ship, as you might say. So the reason why reformism, the liberal class, as a reformist space, has to be destroyed and discredited is because in a revolutionary situation, they are fundamentally undermining the project of revolution. So note, and I've said this in previous episodes, note that I'm saying this in an objectively revolutionary episode, which I'll come on to define in a minute. All right. So central to the whole the whole argument of these of the, this podcast is there are objectively reformist uh, periods and there's objectively ref uh, revolutionary periods. A reformist period is when it's objectively possible to make significant changes in the system without having to change the system as a whole. A revolutionary period, in formal terms, is described as you can't change anything 
fundamentally in the system without actually changing the whole system itself, changing the political regime. So let's think about this as a sort of physical problem in the sense that let's say you're going for a, for a picnic with some friends. So some of your friends want to go to Park A and you want to go to Park B. It's slightly disappointing you're not doing everything together, but at the end of the day, who cares, right? We're going to Park B, you're going to Park A. It's easy to be nice. It's easy to disagree because there's no zero-sum game, right? You know, if you're going to picnic there, we're going to picnic here. It's no big deal, right? So juxtapose that. Think about this in opposition to a very diff different situation. Let's say there's, you know, 20 people and they're trying to cross the desert and they have a big cart with the food on and you can they hit a mountain and they can either go this way around the mountain or the other way around the mountain. You can't do both because someone has to take the cart. So whoever takes the cart is, not, is going to be able to feed themselves and not starve going around this desert mountain. So everyone has to make the same decision. Now what happens is if some people want to go rightwards around the mountain and other people want to go leftwards around the mountain, this is a, technically called a zero-sum game. It's like everyone's got to do one thing or everyone's going to starve. So needless to say, in this situation, you've got a massive potential for conflict. And if you want to get your way, you basically have to completely remove the option of go the other option. It just This is nothing to do with being nice, nothing to do with culture. It's about the physics of the situation. So let's think about another situation, just to you know, get you into the mood, as it were. So let's say people are pushing a car to a garage. So you're pushing the car to the garage and people say, come and help us push this car to the garage. And they go, no, no, we don't want to do that. We've got other things to do. What does that mean? You're still going to get to the garage. It's annoying, but you're still going to get to the garage because you're pushing this, you're pushing this car to the garage. You're just going to get there slower. So it's not the end of the world, literally, is it? Right? You're just going to get there slower. It's a bit annoying. Okay, so think about that in opposition to another example. So there's a car going down the hill. Let's say there's children in the car. Let's say for the sake of argument, they can't get out. There's three people pushing the car, but the car's really heavy and it's going down a hill. And further on down the hill, there's a cliff face, right? And the people pushing the car are going, we're slowing down the car, we're slowing down the car. It'll be all right, we're slowing down the car. But the objective physics of the situation are, it doesn't matter whether they're slowing down the car or not, because if they don't, slow down the car at all, maybe in a minute the car's going to go over the cliff and the children are going to die. If they're pushing the car, it's going to go over the cliff in five minutes. It doesn't matter, right? What's needed is enough people to actually stop the car, physically stop it, so then there's a complete break. Either the children are going to live, you're going to stop the car, or all the children are going to die because they're going to go over the cliff. That's, that's the point of difference, not whether you slow down the car. Slow down the car, they're still going to die. <clears throat> so 
So obviously, like, you probably know what I'm going to come on to, right? The nature of the climate crisis is it's not a picnic, right? It's not pushing the car to the um, station, uh, to the garage. It, the, the climate crisis, in, 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 in its essential physical nature, is the same as going round the mountain. You either completely win or you completely lose. It's the same as pushing the car. If you're just pushing the car a little bit, you're st still going to go over the cliff. You need to have enough people to stop it. So what does this mean in terms of the climate crisis? There's slight variations on the theme in terms of interpretations, but the main scenario would seem to be that if you get to zero carbon by 2050, you're still going to lock in the end of civilization and potentially effective human extinction, right? We're going to go over two degrees. The tipping point is going to lock in at 1.5. This is just the way it is. And, and so getting to zero carbon, or net zero carbon, whatever that's supposed to mean, by 2050 is the same as not doing anything. All it's going to do is delay by a decade or two, at the best, the collapse of human civilization. If you want to actually stop the collapse of civilization, you have to be a revolutionary because it has to be stopped in, let's say, for the sake of argument, in the next five years, which requires a revolutionary change in the structure of society, which is what everyone knows, including the director of this climate media organization, right? You don't, this is not complicated stuff. It's like, you either absolutely stop it or you're going to lose everything forever. So you can see like there's a very, very different situation between the reformist situation. Um, let's all get behind this banner and make slow improvements. So for instance, in 1995, gay liberation was a major issue. Everyone could get behind this reformist like project you didn't have to change the whole society, arguably, and you could get all this reform on gay marriage and all the rest of it. And it would be annoying if everyone didn't get behind the banner of, of you know, reform on, on gay rights, but it was going to happen gradually. And it didn't matter fundamentally if it took five years or 10 years. Obviously, it was annoying, but the whole thing wasn't going to go out of control. We weren't looking at the death of all the gay people in the Western world if we didn't do it within five years, for instance, right? Okay, so this is where we, um, we hit a really big unpleasant problem because we identify a cliff edge. We identify a zero-sum game. Um, Let's just concretize that in terms of the wet bulb effect. So the wet bulb effect, despite what you read in various liberal, <laughs> liberal uh, newspapers, the wet bulb effect is not a tendency. It's not um, a possibility. It's a limit. If you have 100% humidity and it's over 35 degrees, your body dies within six hours, period, right? There's no messing around on it. It's a physical activity. It's like if someone puts five bullets into your heart, you die. It's not, a, it's not for, for all intents and purposes. You are not going to live it, because it's physics, because it's biology. All right, 
so there's two primary reasons why the liberal class um, delays effective revolutionary action. The first one, of course, is they divert numbers. So lots of people, you know, you know let's name a few names, Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, putting lots of social media adverts out going, follow us and we're going to save the world for you. No, they're not, first of all. But more importantly, they're diverting people from this objective revolutionary struggle. In other words, they're, they're, they're removing people who could make up the critical mass for the revolutionary change. So in classical revolutions, what the revolutionaries are saying to the liberal class is, get out of the way, you're either with us or against us, you have to choose. You're either going to support the regime or you're going to be against the regime. There's no, like, in the middle. There's no centre ground. The second thing what the liberal class do is they lie about the reality of the situation in the sense that they will say, well, it's complicated and we're still going to get there in time and it's not obvious that society's going to collapse and the wet bulb effect is a tendency. You know, all these are either white lies or, you know, full-on lies. And so people get information, confused information. So when I go around and do a speech, you know, saying, this is the physics, people are going, oh, I didn't realise it was that bad. Why? Because the liberal media has been confusing them for the last 30 years. So it makes it even more difficult, of course, for the revolutionary message to get traction because it's just endlessly surrounded by this sludge of sort of reformist uh, climate messaging. So a little example here is uh, a scientist, you know, will say, this is the science. But in the article, when, you, when the, science, the scientist is speaking, the scientist is not talking about the science. The scientist is talking about a liberal paradigm of change. It's nothing to do with the science, because the scientist will say towards the end of the article, he'll say, so, you know, what policymakers need to do is to do X, Y and Z. But, you know, either knowingly or unknowingly, the scientist is is making a complete like factual error because there's no way that the present climate regime will do a b and c because there's 30 years of evidence of it and we haven't got enough time because we've only got five years so what the scientist does is dampen the revolutionary paradigm the revolutionary project because he's diverting people into thinking number one policymakers will do something so we don't have to do anything and number two policy makers will do a b and c and there's no chance in hell they will because it's outside their ability because they're you know um under the under pressure from the carbon capital lobby all right <clears throat> so how, how does this uh, how does this actually work how is, how is the liberal class discredited and destroyed in terms of its power that's the project it's not a pleasant project it's not like in a perfect world you could all sit down sit down and have these nice conversations but as we've established it objectively is not a nice situation it's a life and death situation it's a civilizational existential situation it's not a picnic so the classical scenario if you read the history of revolutions over the last 200 years, 
particularly, you know, the violent ones, the whole idea is you literally destroy the class. You go and kill people, you destroy the institutions, destroy the buildings. If you look at, for instance, like the Iranian revolution was a systematic attempt, a successful attempt to destroy the sort of liberal paradigm within Iranian society through a fusion of, you know, revolutionary propaganda and violent action and what have you. <clears throat> What we're looking at in terms of a 20th century revolution is, is a process of using pressure, non-violence, sociability, you know, the things which the, we've been talking about over the last few episodes. So let's, you know, let's get into something a bit more concrete. How could or should this work in 2023? So... A concrete example, let's say it goes over 40 degrees again in the UK, which apparently it might do um, in, in 2023. This is a moment, you know, cognitively, this is a moment when the broader population for, for a few weeks is going to entertain the revolutionary paradigm. This regime is not going to save us in time. The economy is going to collapse or children are going to have, you know, at best horrible life, at worst they're going to starve to death. The, the global south is just being destroyed. Bomb, 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 right? It's like 40 degrees, oh my God, that should have happened, you know, in 2050, it's happening in 2023. So this is an opportunity, uh, a revolutionary moment, as it were, when you can provide an ultimatum. So a written ultimatum goes out to let's say you're focusing on the NGOs or maybe you're focusing on the trade unions or maybe you're focusing on supposedly left-wing media organisations like The Guardian or something. And you say, right, we want to have a meeting because the whole of the progressive project of the last 200 years is about to collapse. We passed 40 degrees, we passed 45, basically everything's going to start cracking up. You know, this is coming down the line, blah, blah, blah. So you invite these people to the meeting. The meeting's already organised. It's not like, do you want to have a meeting? The meeting is already organised, public meeting. You know, it's promoted in the media. That The seats are laid out to people. Um, people turn up. People are presented with the information. If, they're not, if they don't turn up, then there's an empty seat. You know, several thousand people come to the call, let's say. And... And at that, at that moment, the second ultimatum is given. So it's really clear, it needs to be really clear what you're asking, right? Not trying to destroy the liberal class just because they're the liberal class, as I said at the beginning. What you're doing is, is saying the liberal class, number one, has to engage in civil resistance. The editor of The Guardian has to go on hunger strike, right? The director of Greenpeace has to say that all Greenpeace members need to enter civil resistance because we're entering into a wartime situation against nature, against the global south, against people of colour, right? Secondly, they have to fundamentally change their messaging to a revolutionary messaging, which is saying the system is not going to solve the problem and we need a new system, and that involves civil resistance. <clears throat> so, let's be realistic. They're not going to do this for the same reason all the aristocracy didn't come over to the French Revolution. Some will, right? Let's say 1% of people in that space will. Let's say 
10% of the membership of those organisations will. So once the ultimatum is passed, then you go and do direct action, right? You go and occupy the officers, you go and disrupt their, their media. You know, there's a whole bunch of direct actions that can happen. And then there's a big like contestation, like lots of people hear about it, lots of people going, isn't that terrible? You shouldn't be going after Greenpeace, you shouldn't be going after Amnesty International. These are lovely liberal organisations, you're splitting the movement, you're being unpleasant. What we have to understand is, is we're not here to try and reformulate the failed and disastrous like liberal logic, reformist logic. What we're doing is, is we're publicising the revolutionary logic paradoxically through the publicity that is put out by the liberal class. So this has a little resonance with the uh, story I told you about King's College, right? Through paint over King's College. King's College, you know, in their hubris, send out an email to 27,000 students. 70% of those students think they're terrible. 500 of those students are going, fantastic, I'm going to join these guys. They're real. They've got a method of political change which works. And then you get to your critical mass. So what comes out of this contestation with the liberal class is number one, they're objectively discredited because they're shown to be dampening the message and not acting as they should at a time of existential crisis. Secondly, more people come out of that class, out of that social space and join the revolutionary project so that it can get to critical mass. So it doesn't matter. This is what so many liberals don't get, right? It does not matter that 70% of people in the liberal class never come over right? That what's important is that one or two or three percent of them do, because in order to bring down a state, you don't need, you know, five million people, you need something like 50,000 people. And those 50,000 people will involve, you know, 20% of them will be former liberals, as you might say, who have seen the light. So let me just give a little example, another example, sort of how this works. So as most people watching this video will know, just a boy has been, you know, throwing soup over, over pictures and all the rest of it, Van Gogh's. So in Germany, I think they threw tomato, uh, potato soup over this big, you know, art, piece of art. So the liberal proposition, which is empirically illiterate, goes, what you're going to do is you, you're just going to alienate the artistic community. Yes and no. You're going to alienate 70% of the artistic community. Maybe it's 50, maybe it's 30, it doesn't matter. The point is, is 1,500 artists were provoked by that action and subsequent actions to write a letter of support for last generation in Germany. In other words, the 20% of the aristocrats in the French Revolutionary Convention are the same group as the 1,500 artists. Remember, there's probably, let's say for the sake of argument, there's 100,000 artists in, in Germany. So only 1.5% of them came over. But those 1,500 artists amplify, give money, you know, sit on the road, and they, they, they might double the power of last generation, let's say, right? And you only need to increase the power of last generation, say, three or four times, and you're going to win their campaign 
and promote this revolutionary paradigm that everything has to change. Okay, so the last thing to say on this is, you know, I'm a little bit slightly nervous about making this, this video because obviously this is like, no one's pretending this is nice, right? These poor liberal people think they're doing a really good job. Liberals always think they're doing a really good job, but they're not, you know, and this is where realism comes into the revolutionary project. But it's worth considering, of course, that the opposite happens, you know, in a reformist period, the reformist realists systematically destroy the revolutionary space, right? They'll go into revolutionary spaces, they'll undermine the messaging, they'll headhunt people, you know, activists who've been doing direct action, are offered loads of money to go and work for Greenpeace, become accommodated, bureaucratized, right? So this is not, there's nothing intrinsically unpleasant about being a revolutionary as opposed to a reformist, please don't get that into your head. So if you want an example of this, like the last, the last stand of the, of the reformist paradigm, as it were, is the present uh, Labour Party in 2023. So what's the, what the Labour Party is doing in 2023 is systematically removing any radical, revolutionary or socialist ambience from the Labour Party space, right? Because it's controlled by a clique of right-wing psychopathic individuals who have no consideration for due process, no consideration for, for anti-discriminatory behaviour. They are just ruthlessly be creating a single monolithic like party in order to get into power and maintain that party and exclude any pluralistic left input, which is what you might call reformist like dogma, right? There's only one way and we are going to remove everything else. So just bear that in mind. So just to finish off with a few concluding comments, right? This is part of this broad left popularist approach, right? Which is twofold. It's creating us and it's creating them. It's creating us, which is the majority of ordinary people, people of colour, lower middle class people, youth, this this coalition of people are coming together to see their common interests as opposed to the elites. And it's destroying the middle ground by creating a them. There's us and there's them. This is not a matter of all getting together and doing some dialogue. The dialogue, yes, there's dialogue in the system, but dialogue comes after the battle. You have to have the battle first, because if you don't have the battle, you're not going to have the power to change. Okay. So, you know, last little, you know, controversial comment. So when I was growing up, you know, grew up increasingly into a, in a reformist paradigm. And whenever revolutionaries came along, you know, rightly or wrongly, they were, um, they were mocked. And there was this Monty Python sketch, which was saying, you know, there was the people's, the, what was it? You should know. The people's, the people's, um, the, the People's Party of Judea and then there's the the Party of the People's Judea or something like this. And it was all a bit of a joke and it is obviously quite funny because there's loads of sort of Marxist sects. But there's like, fundamentally, the Monty Python sketch is actually wrong historically. That historically is actually enormously important what your strategy is. Because a strategy that sees clearly what's going to happen in the revolutionary period has to maintain a purity of strategic purpose. Even if it looks stupid by the onlooker, 
who's in this sort of reformist paradigm and just wants everyone to work together. Why don't we all work together? Because we're not trying to do the same thing. Because some people are fundamentally undermining the whole strategy for the continuation of human race. And what we're doing is we've got the correct strategy, objectively, because we're talking about physics, right? So that's, that's the harsh reality of the situation. Okay, so next episode we'll be on to security forces. Thanks.